Great to be with you as we dive back into uh, the Good News Apocalypse series, which we were doing, and then we took a little bit of a break, and some of you guys were like, oh, sweet, we're done. Uh, sorry, we're back in it. Um, I know some of you are excited to get back in it, uh, but I told you this, this uh, series is going to take some time, uh, and, but it's worth taking the time. Because this is a book that is uh, full of lots of information, lots of layers, lots of ideas, lots of symbols and metaphors and pictures and references. And uh, it's the most misunderstood book probably in history in terms of how the church has understood uh, the book. And that's part of the reason why we're doing this series. When people are like, why are you spending so much time on the series? Well, it's because... In a time of chaos, of unknowns, of worldwide pandemics, epidemics, wars, vaccines, all sorts of things that we've been a part of our world in the last couple of years, uh, people go to this book of the Bible to prop up their own personal views and ideas. And uh, because it's such a confusing book, uh, because uh, people don't have a hard time understanding what it's actually saying, uh, we're more liable to believe whatever people tell us it's saying. Well, this is what it's saying. This is what's happening. Uh, And we're like, okay, you told me that. Okay, I'll believe it. Uh, And what ends up happening, as I said a number of weeks ago, is we end up doing eisegesis instead of exegesis. That's just a really fancy word for, uh, for saying that we read into the text, eisegesis, we read into the text what we would like it to say that lines up with how we view the world. And unfortunately, this is uh, what many uh, people in the church have, have done and continue to do in times of turmoil and political upheaval. We say, what, what, what are my views or my opinions? And we look into the book and we see the things that we want to see. That's eisegesis. Exegesis is actually reading the text out of its context when it was written, who the original audience was, what they were going through, and trying to figure out what that means for our time. So we're reading it. Uh, we're getting the information or the content out of the text. And so it's important that we spend time understanding the context, what's actually happening, what's going on, and what these symbols mean, and what, what, what John is, is seeing, and how he understood it, seeing what lenses is he hearing it, and what, what's the message to the churches uh, in the first century, and therefore what's the message to us today. Uh, in the context, John is a follower of Jesus. He's an apostle. He's on the island of Patmos, which is 40 miles off of modern-day Turkey, and he's there. Why is he there? In prison? Because he was worshiping Jesus, because he was convinced that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords in the context of the Roman Empire, where people must bow their knee to Caesar. And John said, I'm not going to do that. There's one God. Was God was revealed in Jesus. I'm going to give my life to him, and whatever comes will come. And so for that, John, it, it meant that John was put in prison in the island of Patmos. Uh, John was first and foremost a pastor, and his heart was for the churches that he had influence on, that he had connections and relationship with. And so around 96 AD, John is in his mid-80s by this point, and he is writing a letter to the churches to encourage them in a time of upheaval, in a time of uh, political, uh, political upheaval, in a time of wars, in a time of confusion, in a time where people were wondering, where is God in all this? What's God's plan in all this? How do we live as followers of Jesus in a time and in a world that seems like it's not interested in following Jesus? And that's the second reason why we're doing this series is because that theme is completely relevant for today. How do we follow Jesus in a world in a time uh, in a time when the world seems like it is not interested in going the way of Jesus. And John has a lot of ideas that Jesus gave to him through 
a vision. And so this vision that John receives is uh, called the apocalypse. It's the apocalypse of Jesus. And apocalypse simply means what? Who can remember? Unveiling. After all these weeks, you still remember. The unveiling, the unboxing, the pulling back the curtain, what's the, the seeing of reality that is not readily seeable uh, when we look at the world. And so there's this apocalypse, this revelation. And when we hear the word apocalypse, we typically think it means a bad word. It means there's destruction. There's something terrible that's happening. Um, and when we use it as a verb, apocalyptic, it usually means there's some, there's some a terrible event that has happened or will happen. But this apocalyptic message that Jesus, this vision that Jesus gives to John is apocalyptic, yes, it's a revealing, yes, but what we realize as we go through it, that there's better news than we thought there was. And it doesn't mean that, you know, all of the, all, all of what we read in, in Revelation is just lollipops and rainbows. That's not what, there, there's some stark reality, some hard things to read, uh, but what we read is that those hard things, those realities, the pressure, the tribulation, the suffering, the conflict, all of those things aren't the only thing. All of those things do not have the last word. And in Revelation 4 and 5, we saw this, uh, particularly Revelation 5, we saw this apocalypse that John had that we need to keep in front of us as we go through the book. And I said at the time when we did that chapter, this is the most important chapter in Revelation. If you remember, this is the chapter when John hears a lion roaring. He hears a lion roaring. And this is symbols of uh, the, the Messiah King that was going to come. And when John turns, what does he see? He doesn't see a line. He heard a line, but he turns and he sees what? He sees a slaughtered lamb in the center of the throne. What we realize in this pivotal apocalypse is that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, that he is conquered, that he is in control, that he is the ultimate ruler. But he conquered not through coming like a lion, he conquered not through coercion or force or oppression like the people of God expected the Messiah to do. He actually conquered through suffering. He conquered through his death. He conquered through his humility and his obedience to the Father. And God vindicated him and resurrected him on the third day, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father, and he has all authority on heaven and on earth. That is how the Lamb conquers. And that's the apocalypse. That's the core revelation that we see in Revelation chapter 5. And that has implications for how we read the rest of the text, and particularly how we understand the text that we're going to look at today. And so this apocalypse, this revelation, this unveiling is, yes, to set the present moment in light of the unseen future. There are some glimpses of the future uh, that we will see in Revelation, particularly as we get to the end of the Revelation. But more than that, it's to set the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the present. The apocalypse isn't something that is just going to happen one day. The apocalypse is the unveiling, the revealing of where Jesus is today. In spite of how you feel, in spite of what you see, in, in spite of what is going on in our world, John is saying there's a greater reality than that. So it's not just about the future. It's actually even more so about the present. And as we read the book of Revelation, this apocalypse, it's important to keep in mind that there's nothing new in Revelation that we don't read somewhere else in the Bible. That's what Eugene Peterson said. There's nothing new in Revelation that we don't read somewhere else in the Bible. And so if we go to Revelation looking to decode something about the future that hasn't yet happened, then we're reading it wrong. John is writing this book 
with a certain sense of uh, certain set of lenses and glasses uh, that are framed. And rather, Jesus is actually revealing this to John in his set of glasses, which is rooted and founded in the Old Testament, the things that God has said throughout history. What's happened in John's recent history through the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the lenses that John is wearing help him understand what he is seeing. And so when we go trying to read the book in a way that is about something that hasn't happened yet, instead of through the lenses of the story of God, which John is reading it, we will misunderstand the book. And so we enter that book with that framework, with that, with, with that mindset. And so as we read it, we also need to keep in mind that Revelation is not chronological. I'm just reviewing a few things we've already talked about uh, just to bring us back up to speed after a few weeks of not doing it. The book is not chronological. We actually get to the end of history as we know it, six different times throughout the book of Revelation, six different cycles. There's events that happen, like we'll see next week, where it retells the Christmas story in in Revelation chapter 12. It's not in the future, it's actually in the past. And so John is referring to something that has happened in the past. It's not describing an event that's in the future. And so there's, uh, there's six different cycles that actually tell us the same things over and over again. So when we're reading the book of Revelation, we should never be asking, what happens next? We should always ask, what does John see next? Because what John sees next isn't necessarily what happens next, but we'll, we'll start to experience the same themes and messages over and over again as we go through the book. In fact, as I'm preparing these, these sermons and future sermons, I'm like, we actually end up at the same point at the end of each of these sermons. Um, so uh, be prepared. The landing point will be very similar as we go forward. And 40 times in Revelation, John says, I saw, and 32 times he says, I heard. And so this book is about hearing and seeing properly, which is an echo of what Jesus says. Do you have the ears to hear and the eyes to see? Do we have the ears to hear and the eyes to see what God is revealing, what his apocalypse is for his church? And so we need to look with the eyes and the lenses that John is looking at the book with. So there's six different cycles that we see. And uh, these visions that John sees as they go over and over again are intended to shock and to comfort the church. The intent, the church, the intent of each cycle is to encourage people to follow the Lamb, to stay faithful to the Lamb, to worship the Lamb. And so these visions, even though there's these very grotesque and hard images that we will read, uh, will always cycle back, and we we get brought back to the throne room where the lamb is at the center of the throne and Jesus is saying what you're seeing and experiencing in the world isn't all there is to see, that there's a greater reality and a greater truth going on. And so we see these cycles of, of uh, warning and then comfort and encouragement and worship. And it goes over and over and over again through the book of Revelation. And a, couple, a few of these cycles, we see that there's three sets of seven. There's the three seals uh, that we finished uh, in the last section that we did, uh, which looks at the cycle that we just described from the perspective of the church. And then there's the trumpets, which we're going to uh, look at a part of that section today. The seven trumpets are for the perspective of the world and how the world is experiencing God's actions and history, actions through history as judgment. Then we see that there's the perspective of the cosmos that we see when, when the, we, we get to the seven bulls, and it's, it's working out the justice for all time everywhere on a cosmic level. And all of it is going on all throughout time. It's not something, again, that's happening in the future. These cycles are happening from the first coming to the second coming of Jesus. 
This is the, the word that John introduces when he talks about this theme is flipsis, which is what we translate as tribulation or suffering. And he's saying that the tribulation, the suffering, is not going to happen someday in the future. It's actually happening now. It's happening in, in the church from when Jesus first came to when he's going to come again. And flipsis, this pressure, this tribulation, is what happens when two different kingdoms collide. And so the question is, when two kingdoms are colliding, the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of our Lord, when these kingdoms are colliding, how will the church respond? What is God doing in the midst of it, and how is the church going to respond and live in the midst of that? And today we're going to be talking about the call of the church and how to live in the midst of that. We're almost there. Within these three sets of seven, uh, we see that the bulls happen within the seventh trumpet, which happened within the seventh seals. And as I said earlier, it's like a nesting doll, right? Uh, it just kept, instead of getting smaller and smaller, though, we, we see that what's happening in the book is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. That as John is looking, his view of what's happening in the world is getting more and more cosmic as the book is going on. And so uh, we see that this, the seventh event in each of those sevens is describing the same event. Uh, this is describing the movement of God. It's an echo from Exodus. God is showing up on Mount Sinai where Moses saw the face of God and there's rumblings and thunders and flashes of lightning and earthquakes. Uh, and again, these are images, uh, metaphors that describe the movement and the presence of God. And it's going from a localized reality into a cosmic global reality. And so today we're looking at the seven trumpets. Um, Actually, we're looking at the end of the seven trumpets. And so when John describes the seven trumpets, John goes back and retells the story again. He tells the cycle again, this time from a different perspective. This time he's using, if you read um, Revelation 8 and 9 in particular, you'll see that he's using images from the Exodus that's, that's telling about how God rescued and redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt. The first five blasts replay the plagues that are sent upon Egypt, the first five blasts of the trumpet, and the sixth uh, trumpet is the four horsemen that we read about in the seals. We see that happening again. Uh, and then at the end of those six judgments, at the end of those six realities, those six hardships that are happening on the earth, we see that the nations do not repent. The nation, and the word repent means to turn. The nations do not turn from their worldly ways, from the worship of their idols. They do not turn and put Jesus as the center of their lives in spite of the hardship and suffering that they're going through. The nations do not repent. We see this in Revelation 9.20. But the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. They continued to worship demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, of their witchcraft, or their sexual immorality, or their theft thefts. So what John is describing here is that the hardships, the pressure, the suffering that was happening in the world, that continues to happen in the world in and of itself does not bring people to a posture of repentance. And that's important to keep in mind as we go to the interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. Now remember, between the sixth and the seventh seal, there was an interlude, and that's where John got a greater revelation of what was really happening. Between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, John has a, ne- a whole other level of apocalypse in this interlude of what is happening despite the, the suffering, the hardship, and the judgment that's going on in the world. And so why do we bother with these interlude? Because each interlude actually answers the question that the previous six events brings to mind. 
And so the, the question when we got to the first interlude uh, after the seals was, well, who can, who can be saved? Who can stand? And we realized that the interlude showed us that everybody who has given their life to Jesus can actually stand. Now, as we go to the second interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, the question is, what is the church supposed to do under the pressure in the world? So now that we're waiting as followers of Jesus in this chaotic, tumultuous world, how is the church supposed to respond? How do we then live in light of the apocalypse? What is the church supposed to do under the pressure in the world? And so that brings us, all of that brings us to Revelation 11. And I'm going to get you to stand with me as I read Revelation 11. So if you could stand, if you're able, partly just to make sure you're not falling asleep, uh, and partly because it's the reading of God's word. Then I was given a measuring stick and I was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the number of worshipers. But do not measure the outer courtyard, for it has been turned over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will be clothed in burlap and will prophesy during those 1,260 days. These two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from their mouths and consume their enemies. This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. They have the power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. And they have the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. When they complete their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit will declare war against them and he will conquer them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the main street of Jerusalem in the city that is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, the city where their Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, all peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will stare at their bodies. No one will be allowed to bury them. All the people who belong to this world will gloat over them and give presents to each other to celebrate the death of the two prophets who had tormented them. But after three and a half days, God breathed life into them and they stood up. Terror struck all who were staring at them. Then a loud voice from heaven called to the two prophets, come up here. And they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. At the same time, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city. 7,000 people died in that earthquake, and everyone was terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second terror is past, but look, the third terror is coming quickly. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices shouting in heaven, the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders sitting on their thrones before God fell with their faces to the ground, and worshiped him. The reading of God's word. You can have a seat. Now, that is a lot. A lot of discomfort as we read that text, no? Did anyone be like, oh man, this is great. I'm so glad I came to church this morning. <laughs> so we, we can understand why when we read a text like this, why, how it gets misunderstood, how there's different interpretations, how people have different ideas, um, particularly if we go to the text with, with the mindset of this is talking about a future event rather than, uh, than the context of the Old Testament, what has happened and what God is currently doing, uh, we will really uh, miss 
understand what is being described in this, this text. So I want to go, that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to go through this text bit by bit. It's going to take us a little bit, little bit of time to unpack uh, some of those numbers and symbols and references, um, but it'll be worth it. And we'll realize as we go through it and put on the glasses that John is wearing that there is Old Testament echoes everywhere. I remember when my kids were little, particularly my youngest son, and we would go into um, like a building or a space. He was just fascinated by this idea of echo that he could yell and he would hear his voice come back to him. And so he would often like test, test the spaces for the level of echo, right? So we walk into like a you know, foyer in an office building and you just yell, echo! And then you listen. Um, and so we're going to look at the echoes this morning as we walk into these rooms, these Old Testament rooms, these Old Testament references and say, what is the echo being described? So everybody say echo. And I'm going to ask you to echo as we go through this, uh, because I want us to keep in mind that what is being said, what is being described, what is being seen is through the lenses of the Old Testament, which is the worldview that John had as a being part of the Jewish story, being part of the story of God and his people throughout history. These are the lenses that John is wearing. And so there's, there's all sorts of echoes that Jesus is communicating to John uh, in a way that he can understand it. Uh, and if we want to understand it, we actually have to look through those lenses. Uh, and so what I'd say as we start to go is don't try and memorize what I'm saying. Don't try and remember everything. There's no way that we can memorize or remember. There, there's so many images, illusions, metaphors, pictures, numbers. Uh, the point isn't to decode it and understand and memorize everything. The, the point is to get overwhelmed by the narrative. The point is to see the picture that's being painted. Remembering that we're not being told anything that God hasn't already said, but we're being told it in a new way that's intended to capture our hearts and increase our allegiance to King Jesus. And so this is going to feel like drinking from a fire hose. And so to use that metaphor, I'd say, don't try and drink, just get soaked by it. Don't try and drink it, just get soaked by it. Catch the essence of what is happening in the text. And so here we begin uh, in verse one. Then I was given a measuring stick and I was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the number of worshipers. Now, is, this, is, is John being spoken to literally or symbolically? symbolically. Um, and this is actually an easy one, because how do we know that? Because when John is being told this in 96 AD, the temple was decimated in 70 AD. There was no temple that currently existed. It didn't stand. There was no literal temple to go and measure, right? And so like the other references in John, the numbers in John, they're, they're symbols, right? And so the temple, as we see in Revelation 11 and on, but we'll see at the end of Revelation as well, there's, it's not talking about a literal temple. Uh, we see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, this, is what's this, this is how the temple is described. In 1 Corinthians, do you not know that you, are t- that you, the church, are a temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God has said, I will dwell in them and among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. 1 Peter 2, 5, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. The temple of God is now the temple of, is now the people of God. Uh, And so this is consistent in the New Testament, that the temple is not referencing a building, it is actually about the presence of God, and God's presence has been given by His Spirit to His church. Okay, so that's just a little foretaste. We're going to go through rapid fire as we go through the text. Uh, so He was given a measuring stick. Everybody say echo. 
So this is a reference to Zechariah 2. In Zechariah 2, a man appears with a measuring line in his hand in 2 verse 1. He says, he has come to measure Jerusalem to see how wide and long it is. And he asked God, why am I doing this? And the Lord answers, for I will be a wall of fire to her and I will be the glory in her midst. John is told to measure the temple in Revelation 11 to measure the people of God. Not a literal measurement, but this is a reference that God is going to protect his people, and he's going to dwell in our midst. He's going to be like a wall around his people, a protection for his people. So John is told, like Zechariah, to measure. Uh, so I was told to measure, uh, and, and I was told to go measure the temple of God and the altar and count the number of worshipers. And we go on, but do not measure the, the outer courtyard, for it has been turned over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months and I will give power to my two witnesses and they will be clothed in burlap and I will prophesy during those 1,260 days. Well, there's a lot of stuff right there. Uh, so really quickly, clothed in burlap or a lot of translations say clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth was a sign of a prophet and it is more importantly the sign of repentance. The two witnesses wear the sign of repentance because they're speaking a word that calls for repentance for people to turn from their idols to turn to Lord Jesus. And because the witnesses themselves are living in repentance, they're living in humility. They're living in brokenness because they have turned away from their own sin and their idol worship. And they've given their lives to Jesus. They're wearing the sackcloth, not only because they're repentant, but because they have a prophetic voice in a time where the world is in upheaval. So the, what they're wearing is important. And then we see this reference to 42 months. What is this about? Is it a statistic or a symbol? Symbol. Every number, every number in the book of Revelation is symbolic. It's a symbol. All numbers in the revelation of Jesus Christ are symbols. 42 months is 1,260 days based on months being 30 days. Uh, 42 months, 1,260 days is the length of time that Jesus says the nations trample on the temple of God while the witnesses who are wearing sackcloth, who are a prophetic, repentant, humble witness, are witnessing about him. 42 months, 1,260 days, or three and a half years. All of these references, all these numbers are referring to the same length of time. Three and a half is one half of seven, which we know is the number of? Completion. Okay, we're paying attention. The number of perfection, the number of completion. So this number symbolizes that this 42 months, 1,260 days, three and a half years is a significant amount of time, but it is an incomplete, unfulfilled, temporary amount of time. It is not the fullness of time. So even though what the church is going through and experiences and you, feel, and you feel like, is there any end to this? Where's the hope? Where's the good news? What the apocalypse of John is telling us through the 42 months, 1,260 days, three and a half years, is that what you are going through, what you are experiencing, what is happening on this earth, even though you feel like this is all-encompassing, it is a temporary thing. There's better news to come. So they will trample the holy city for 42 months and I will give power to my two witnesses and they will be clothed in burlap or sackcloth and will prophesy during those 1,260 days. Now, why two witnesses? Again, depending on the lenses that you take when you read the book of Revelation, some people who read this thinking it's all about predicting a future that hasn't yet happened are literally thinking there's two witnesses that are yet to come. If we read it with the lenses that John is reading it, 
embedded in the Old Testament worldview, embedded in the biblical world, we'll realize that two corresponds with the well-known biblical requirement that evidence is only acceptable on the testimony of a minimum of two witnesses. In the Old Testament law, in Deuteronomy 19, it says, you must not convict anyone of a crime on the testimony of only one witness. The facts of the case must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Jesus reiterates this point in John 8, 17. He says, your own law says that if two people agree about something, their witness is accepted as fact. So two witnesses mean that that what they are testifying is true, that what they are testifying is accurate, that what they are testifying about is trustworthy, what they are testifying about is fact. This is real reality. This is what the two witnesses are intended uh, to to represent, the the reality, the testimony, the trustworthiness of what what they are saying. But who are these two witnesses is the next question. Again, literal or symbol? Symbol. Symbol of what? Well, we're going to read in the next verse, what does it say? These two prophets are the two olive trees and the two what? Lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. Have we seen the symbol of lampstands before? Have we read that metaphor before? The answer is yes. At the beginning of Revelation uh, what does the lampstands represent? In Revelation 1, verse 20, the seven stars of the, are the seven angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Everybody say churches. All right. You're staying with me. So the seven, or the, the lampstands, the two witnesses, are the accurate, trustworthy testimony of the church. The two witnesses represent the church. So when we put this picture together in these, uh, all of these images, references, numbers, uh, we see that God has anointed, this is why they're also called two olive trees, the picture of anointing. God has anointed, called his church to be a true and accurate witness to who Jesus is and what he's done. This is to happen for three and a half years, 42 months or 1,260 days. This means that the church is called to be this accurate witness for significant but temporary time and incomplete time. This is the time between the first and second coming of Jesus. And how do we know that? We'll see that next week when we look at Revelation 12. The church is clothed in sackcloth, which means it's a humble church. It's a repentant church. And its job is not to pronounce judgment but to surrender and witness to King Jesus. How would our world look differently if the church understand that its call in the present time is not to be one of judgment, but of witness? One, a church that wears sackcloth, that is humble, that is repentant, that is willing to give their lives for the sake of King Jesus. This is how the the church is called to live between the first and second coming. Of Jesus. And we go on. So these two prophets are like the two olive trees or the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. They have the power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall as long as they prophesy. And they have the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. Everybody say echo. So many Old Testament echoes throughout this. 
These are all references to Old Testament prophets, particularly the two prophets of Moses and Elijah. Elijah was given the power to stop rain for three years and call down fire from heaven. Moses was given the power to turn the Nile River into blood and to send plagues into the kingdom of Egypt. They are prophets who both confronted the world, a world of pagan idolatry, and they set the precedent for the church's witness to a world who is not willing to bend their knee to King Jesus. In a world full of idols, John sees that the church is to be a prophetic witness, not bowing down to the idols of our time, but only bowing down to King Jesus. And so John sees this image, and, and he sees these references to Moses and Elijah and his understanding that the, the church is called to be a prophetic witness in this time. Not two, literal wit- not two literal witnesses, but all of us collectively are witnessing to the reality and the truth of the apocalypse that Jesus the Lamb is sitting at the center of the throne. When they complete their testimony, the beast that comes out of the bottomless pit will declare war against them and will conquer them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the middle of the streets of Jerusalem, street of Jerusalem, the city that is figuratively, figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, the city where their land was crucified. And some of you are like, oh, giddy, we get to talk about the beast. Not yet. This is a, uh, how many of you guys are excited to talk about the beast? This is like, when you, when you knew we were doing Revelation, you're like, okay, I can't wait till we get to the beast. So this is just like a foretaste. Uh, the beast is actually going to come into the scene in a couple of weeks. Um, but this is the first encounter we have with the beast. And John does what he typically does and introduces a character into the story ahead of when they take center stage in the drama that he's seeing. Um, so we're going to spend significant time in two weeks, but there's an echo. Everybody say echo here with the beast in a reference to Daniel 7, but we'll get into that in a couple of weeks. The, the beast overcomes and kills the witnesses. Why? Because the beast does not like the one whom the witnesses are bearing witness to. This is going to be a significant theme as we look at Revelation 12 next week, but the witnesses are testifying to Jesus and the beast and Jesus are in conflict. And, and so the, the beast does not like the witnesses and the truth that they are, uh, they are giving. The witnesses and persecution take place, says John, uh, at the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And so there's a lot going on right there. And so we know that their Lord was crucified uh, in Jerusalem, not Sodom and Egypt, but he call, refers to it figuratively as Sodom and Egypt. And in the Bible, Sodom is the human cities at their most immoral and corrupt. Sodom is the representation of the city when it is most immoral and corrupt. And Egypt is a representa- representation of cities at their most oppressive and resistant. We see that that's the characterization of those two cities in the biblical narrative and story. So is John saying that Jerusalem has become Sodom and Egypt? He's not even talking uh, literally about Jerusalem. In the rest of Revelation, when we talk about the great city, which is going to take center stage as we get further on in the book, the great city will be later referred to as Babylon. Again, another biblical reference that has a lot of imagery and narrative around it. Uh, And so the point being that the world in its current state Society in its current state has been, uh, has, is immoral and corrupt. The, the, church, the world in its current state, when it's at its worst, being oppressive and resistant, takes on the characteristics of Sodom and Egypt and Babylon. And the church is called to be a witness, a prophetic witness, just like the Old Testament prophets were in those times, at those cities uh, in this time. 
And remember, when John writes this, Jerusalem is no more. It's been leveled. So John is not saying to the two witnesses of the church that they're supposed to bear witness in a literal Jerusalem. Uh, the great city is every and any city that resists the inbreaking of the kingdom of God and resists to bow their knee to King Jesus. Make sense? It made sense to two people. Um, all right. And we keep going. And for three and a half days... All peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will stare at their bodies. No one will be allowed to bury them. All the people who belong to this world will gloat over them and give presents to each other to celebrate the death of the two prophets who had tormented them. Three and a half days. Again, we've seen this number before. It's half of seven. It's incomplete. It's not the full picture. But now we see this in day form instead of year form. It's the period of time when it appears that the beast, the Antichrist, has defeated the church. It's very, very brief. This is what John is seeing. This is what Jesus is saying. It's brief. The three and a half days is being applied symbolically to echo the time between the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the time when Satan thought that he had won when the Messiah was crucified, only to see three days later that Jesus was alive, that he was resurrected, and that he had all power and authority. The two witnesses are called to be witnesses of the Lamb, the one who was slain, the one who's sitting at the center of the throne, the one who died, but he was resurrected three days later. So it says, but, but after three and a half days, God breathed life into them and they stood up. Everybody say echo. This is a reference to Ezekiel 37, where God breathes life into the dry bones and he resurrects his people. And so we see Jesus uses this image again, this prophetic image saying that in spite of what's happening, even as my church are giving their very lives for this witness, for this testimony, it's not the end of the story, that there's a greater story, that the resurrection that happened to Jesus is actually going to happen to the church. The resurrection that happened to the Lamb is going to happen to the two witnesses. Terror struck all who were staring at them. Then a loud voice from heaven called to the two prophets, come up here, and they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. And now here comes the good news. At the same time, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city. 7,000 people died in the earthquake, and everyone was terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second terror has passed, but look, the third terror is coming quickly. You're like, good news. Anybody wondering where the good news is in this? It is good news. But it's not good news unless we actually see it through the lens that John is reading it with. Everybody say echo. Again, what is being said here is in reference to the story of God revealed through his word, through his Old Testament, through the Old Testament. Um, and so a tenth of the city, this idea of a tenth is referenced in a couple of prophetic books, uh, Isaiah 6 being one of them. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. And so Isaiah is saying that there's something coming when God is, there's going to be something devastating, but don't worry, God's going to keep and save a tenth of his people. Amos 5 says, your city that marches out a thousand strong will have a hundred left. Your town that marches out a hundred strong will have only 10 left. How many is a hundred of a thousand? A tenth. How many is 10 out of a hundred? A tenth. I mean, I failed grade 10 math really, really badly, but I can even do this math. 
Um, and so what we're going to see is what I'm going to refer to as apocalyptic rhythmic. This is gospel math. Just wait for it. What about the 7,000 number? So we, we read the 10th. So this is the references to the 10th. Now we go to the 7,000, uh, which, is, which is part of a well-known story of the prophet Elijah, one of the major prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, God, or he replied again, I have zealously served the Lord. This is Elijah um, responding to God. Uh, he said, I've served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me too. And so Elijah saying, we did everything that we were supposed to do. We stood up for you, and now I'm all alone. I'm the only one left. Then the Lord told him, go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. Anyone who escapes from Hazael will be killed by Jehu, and those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I will preserve, what? 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. I will preserve 7,000. Yeah, there's going to be devastation. Many, many, many people are going to die, but I'm going to save and redeem and rescue 7,000. Don't worry. So this is the prophetic witness that we see in the Old Testament. This is what we see in the life of Elijah, what we see in uh, the book of Amos. This is the lens that John is reading and understanding what Jesus is revealing and saying to him. This is propped up and supported by the fact that even the previous references and metaphors also came from Moses and Elijah and and, uh, Zechariah. And so we see the prophetic witness is shaping this entire apocalypse. Now we go back to Revelation 11 and it says, again, at the same time, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city. 7,000 people died in that earthquake and everyone was terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So where's the good news in this? One-tenth, 7,000. Statistics or symbols? Symbols. All the numbers in this revelation are symbols, with tenth and a thousand. Symbols of what? Symbols of grace. And you're looking at them. How is this grace? One-tenth, 7,000. Sounds awful. And it is. But John is doing gospel math. He's doing apocalyptic arithmetic. The prophet Isaiah spoke of God saving one-tenth, but nine-tenths died and fell. The revelation of Jesus saying that God is saving nine-tenths. Elijah. Elijah is saying that only 7,000 would remain, but everybody else would perish. Elijah bemoans the fact that only 7,000 are left, but John says that 7,000 die, and we've used the 10th mat, 63,000 are left. The arithmetic is opposite. It's reverse. And what John sees in the apocalypse is that the good news is better than he thought. The prophetic vision that God is doing in the world is better than the prophets thought. The apocalyptic arithmetic, what's being revealed is not one-tenth saved, nine-tenths lost, but nine-tenths saved and one-tenth lost. And how did this happen? What was the shift? And if you remember at the end of the sixth trumpet, The people, after the sixth trumpet, what did it say? None of them repented. 
Revelation 9.20, the people who did not die in these plagues refused to repent of their evil deeds and turned to God. Revelation 11.13, at the same time, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city. 7,000 people died in the earthquakes and everyone, say that word with me, everyone, everyone else who was left was terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. So look at this. The sixth trumpet of judgment hardship, it says that people do not repent. The hardship, the thlipsis, the suffering, the things that we go through in this life in and of itself is not enough to bring people to a place of repentance. But something switches between Revelation 9 and Revelation 11. What is the switch? Well, in the interlude, we see that the switch is the faithful witness of the church, even to the point of death. Everyone who was left gave glory to the God of heaven. So we see that what is needed in this time, in John's time and our time, is not just for judgment. It's not just for hoping that hardship comes and people lift their eyes and they see Jesus and they turn to Jesus. John is saying that is not enough. What is needed is the faithful witness of the church who wearing sackcloth, living lives of repentance and humility, taking on the prophetic role of not judgment, but testifying and witness to Jesus who has died and resurrected is now sitting at the throne. And regardless of what we see and experience that there is a God who has a better story and he's inviting us to be a part of it. What is needed and what we see changes between revelation nine and revelation 11 is that the, the church decides to follow the way of the lamb. And when that happens, the world changes. In Revelation 5, John hears a lion expecting a lion and he sees a lamb. In Revelation 11, we see that the church chooses to go the way of the lamb. The apocalypse, the revelation is that Jesus has full authority because of his death and resurrection. He conquered through suffering. The further apocalypse is that judgment and hardship alone does not turn people's direction. It does not lead them to repentance, but it's when the church chooses to be a faithful witness, which means not just proclaiming and telling people about Jesus, but being willing to die and suffer in the way that Jesus died and suffered. That is where the world begins to see love, agape love, self-sacrificial love in its truest form, and it turns and melts their hearts. Your words alone, our words alone do not change hearts, although they're important. That's an important part of what it means to be a prophetic voice, but it's the work of the Holy Spirit that empowers us to live like Jesus in a chaotic world that wants to snuff Jesus out. As we speak out and live out the way of Jesus, agape love in a self-sacrificial way, that is how the Holy Spirit works his transformation into the kingdom of this world. So Revelation 11 reveals the mission of the church to imitate the loving sacrifice of the Lamb. The kingdom of God will be revealed when the nations see the church imitating the loving sacrifice of the lamb, not killing their enemies, not judging their enemies, but willing to die for them because they profess nothing but the death and resurrection of Jesus. There, the church here is referred to as witness. And a witness means that you are not on trial, right? That's what a witness means. You're not the one who's on trial. Who is on trial? Jesus the lamb is on trial. He is the one we were testifying for. He is the one we were giving a true account of. And this is so important for the church to remember uh, because I think we often feel like we are the ones on trial. We're not. 
We don't have anything to prove. We don't have anything to gain. We don't have anything but the reality and the truth of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That is what we are witnesses to. And so as the world sorts out its idols, as the world goes through hardship and suffering and is trying to figure out what is really real, we testify and not defend ourselves, but we defend Jesus and we're willing to walk and live in the way of Jesus, which may even involve giving our very lives for him. I'm going to invite you to stand. We see at the end of each of these cycles that the end response every single time in the throne room is the people of God worshiping God. And so remember I said the point was not to drink from the fire hose, but just get soaked by it. Uh, There's so much in these texts. Jesus, I think, intent was to overwhelm John with the sense of urgency, importance, to in some ways terrify him, (laughs) but in other ways to open his eyes to see how good and how big and how redemptive God is. And then the response of God's people at the end of every one of these cycles of revelation of apocalypse is to respond in worship because they finally see. And so I'd invite you to see, to hear what Jesus' message is to his church and respond to him, the lamb who is at the center of the throne, who we give our lives to, to testify to, to give witness to, and ultimately, if necessary, give our lives for. So Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your death and resurrection. Lord, we thank you that we are not on trial. But we thank you that you've given us the opportunity and privilege to be your witness. That we would profess who you are and what you've done with our mouth. That we would profess who you are and what you've done with our lives. That we would, like you, give away our lives for the sake of the good news. Because we know that no matter what it seems like in the present, the present does not have the last word. And so we lift our eyes to you and we thank you for this apocalypse, for this revealing. We see you for where you are at the center of the universe, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And we commit our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen. moving through this time in history and you're like what am I supposed to do as a follower of Jesus in in a time like this? Well the answer here Jesus gave to John and the answer for us is that our role again is not to act like we're on trial but to only be witnesses to the true truth for what is really real for what is fact, for what is trustworthy and we are witnesses and we testify that Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords That 2,000 years ago, he died on the cross, and because of his death, he he has given forgiveness of sins for all who come to him. Because of his resurrection, he gives hope for new life so that we can live without fear. And we know that whatever happens in this life is not the end of the story. And so we're encouraged by the death and resurrection of Jesus to live with courage and boldness and to give witness to him and to count our lives even uh, as, as nothing compared to the richness of knowing Jesus and giving our lives for him, as it says in Philippians 2. 
If you are someone who has never chosen to give your life to Jesus, you can do that at any point. Uh, we would invite you if you feel led to do that. Uh, there will be time after the service where our prayer teams are here. We would love to pray for you. Uh, if you are someone who's been following Jesus for a while and you're contemplating what does it mean to be a witness to Jesus, I would just say that witness means two things. It means what, what you are saying and proclaiming, uh, but also what you're doing. And I think some of us, we talk a lot, and we probably need to talk less and live more like Jesus. Some of us are just living like Jesus, but we're not articulating for people why we're living like that. And, and so for probably some of us, we need to talk more and say, this is Jesus central to my life. But the Holy Spirit wants you to be a witness to who Jesus is and what he's done. So I invite you just to close your eyes with me. Um, and and as, before I pray, I would also just say that there's a sense, uh, I think, as a church that uh, we need to be uh, more intentional and strategic in terms of sharing what Jesus has done with, with people that don't know him. And, uh, and we're hoping to run, uh, we've done it in the past, we're hoping to run alpha groups again uh, coming up. And so if you're someone who feel like God is pulling on your heart to be a part of an alpha group, to help lead one, maybe to host one, or maybe you have friends that you know would love to be a part of something like that, um, uh, please uh, come chat with one of the staff or um, leave your name at the Welcome Center. We'd love to follow up with you. So Jesus, again, uh, we thank you for what you've done. Uh, we thank you that um, you have empowered us by your Holy Spirit to, be, to bear witness to who you are. Um, Lord, for those of us who are maybe more reserved and slow to articulate our faith, I pray, Lord, that you would give us courage and opportunity. Uh, Lord, for those who, of us who love to talk, um, but are so slow to live that repentant, humble lifestyle of your witnesses. Lord, I pray that you would convict that upon our hearts too, to reflect who you are, the way of the Lamb, and the way that we live. That we would give ourselves for the sake of others. I pray that we would be a prophetic witness in a tumultuous time, so the world may know, Jesus, that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And in your name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for coming. Have a great week. Uh, we'll see you next week.